Hey guys, this morning I just put the water bottle on here and it fell out halfway through and was the loudest thing you've ever heard during a quiet sermon. That will not happen this time. So, um, prayer matters, so let's do that before we get into anything else, if you join me in that. Father, thank you for today. Um, thank you for the chance that we can meet here. The fact that we have a place to meet, we have not forgotten that that is because of you. Um, our thanks for taking care of us. Um, please make us, as Jesse likes to say, smarter instead of dumber by the end of this sermon and this night. Um, we want to love you better. Help show us how. Amen. So, I got this sermon done, but barely. Uh, praise God for just enough time. Um, I think I finished last night about 6 p.m. working on it this morning, but it got done. So you don't just have to stare at me saying nothing. Um, it was close because I just finished a, uh, a summer class that I'm taking over at Metro. Uh, and that was just this past week. So time was a little, little crunched. Um, although there is that great feeling of satisfaction when you finish a class, you know, no matter what else happens, you're a little closer to that graduation. Uh, I know a few of you understand that because she graduated from my program. Jackie Benner did. Um, I'm playing catch up now. Um, but yeah, that sense of satisfaction is great because goodness knows you're not getting anything else for it. Nobody is paying you for finishing a class as great as that would be. Um, I know. Turns out the whole starving college thing, starving college student thing, uh, it's a thing. It's a real thing, it turns out. Um, and uh, money's kind of tight for my wife and I, as it is for most of us, whether you're students or not, I'm quite sure. And uh, so that's why once a year or so, I like to take all the bank statements and sort of put together this little budget projection thing, where basically I look at everything and say, okay, am I wasting money anywhere? Yes, okay, cut that. Uh, and the big thing is figure out whether I'm slowly gaining, slowly losing, holding steady. Um, so I did that just about a month ago and uh, got a really weird result. So didn't quite believe it, double-checked it, uh, got the same result. So like any you know, intelligent individual, I tried again, thinking there will be a different result. Uh, that fails. And uh, I'm just staring at this math that says, Adam, you're going to be out of all of your money by December. There's a special kind of horror in that. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you're looking at sort of the, you know, the chart, and it just nosedives. And you're like, okay, crap. And I don't freak out about money, really, but I was freaking out. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, my big question was what happened. Because I had done this before, run the numbers about nine, ten months ago, just before quitting my second job, uh, slinging Percocet for Walgreens. Uh, and uh, I, I quit that job based on running the numbers and them saying, okay, you can quit this job, just focus on scum and school, and you'll be all right. You know, just tighten your belt a little bit, go to the food pantry every now and then, you'll be okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I know this shouldn't happen. And I'm staring at the screen with this sinking feeling in my stomach, and I just start asking God, look, God, you have always, always provided for me. Why aren't you doing it now? God had always provided for me before. Uh, you know, times had been tight once upon a time, but ever since then, you know, I'd, I'd gotten kind of comfortable. 
you know, I had a little bit extra saved up in the old checking account so that if something catastrophic happened, uh, I'd still be all right for a good three to six months if I lived real simply. Uh, I guess you could say my prayers at that point were more like prayers for monthly bread or annual bread. As terrifying a mental image as that is, just a pile in your corner. Um, and, uh, you know, it made me feel safe asking for yearly bread, as it were. Um, and every so often I thank God for it. But by and large, I was living in a way that numbed me to my need for God's provision. I didn't realize until this budget crisis, but praying for annual bread allowed me to live as if my need for God was optional. And that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. Tonight, I want to look at how he did. So for those of you who haven't been around lately, we are in the middle of a study on the Lord's Prayer, slash the Our Father, slash the Disciples' Prayer, slash that thing in Matthew 6. Um, and uh, this week, we're looking at the concept of daily bread. Uh, and I want to give you the context on this, but that would be the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not going to stand up here and just recite three chapters of Matthew because, you know, I would fall asleep. I, I can only imagine how many of you might. Um, not true. I like the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, uh, let's go up to the first screen on the PowerPoint then. The somewhat closer context on it. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We can actually think the next slide. That's what I'm actually looking for. There we go. More context. Um, so... Am I on my notes at all? Nope. <laughs> Anyhow, Jesus gave us this prayer as a model for how we should pray whenever we do. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that we should be praying continually, so we can infer that this Lord's Prayer, if you want to call it that, is something we should be doing at least daily. Um, the first half of the prayer is more about the sort of macro view of uh, God's work in the world. And the second half from the daily bread part onward is more about the micro view of living rightly and sort of person-to-person person, person, person relationships in the community, uh, which it's worth noting is probably why you see an awful lot of we, us, our in the prayer and not a single instance of I, me, my. Saying. Uh, regardless of how you divide the prayer, though, uh, every part of it is about this process of transforming our hearts, our minds, our lives Christ, kingdom way of being, rather. And that really colors the way that I have to read, give us this day our daily bread. You know, I'd always looked at that as more of sort of a personal, individual thing, because I live in America, and I'm constantly told by everything, it's all about you. I saw it as saying, okay, I need some basic things to survive, so let's solve that. I saw it as about me, but as I mentioned, there is no me in this prayer. It's collective, it's relational, and more than it's about me, it's actually more so about the character of God. In this very compact template for prayer, Jesus chose to include the teaching that we ask him, our Father, for our basic needs. He's telling us that among his other qualities, he is a loving Father that wants to be our provider, and he wants us to enter into that relationship daily. Why daily, though? 
it seems sort of impractical, inefficient, if you will. Uh, and it is, and that's a good thing. And we're looking for other examples of this in the scriptures so that we can understand it a little better by watching it get played out in practice. And the best example I could find was in Exodus 16. The Israelites, in this point in the story, have just gotten out of Egypt, and now they are freaking out about where they're going to get their food because they're in the middle of the desert, and I would probably be freaking out too. God responds by making this flaky bread-like stuff called manna just show up on the ground every morning. And every evening, he sends them quail to eat. He tells them, every day, gather enough for that day. That's kind of weird. I mean, we're used to the story, so I feel like it kind of numbs us to the strangeness of the whole thing. Uh, but imagine if God said to scum of the earth, Okay, many of you are broke and starving, so every morning I will make bagels show up, ringing the lampposts on Santa Fe. And every evening, a hundred ducks will fall dead out of the sky and land on the patio on our second floor until it is carpeted with freshly deceased waterfowl. Try not to step in it. Like, that's freaking weird. And probably smelling pretty bad. Um, as weird as that is for the Israelites, though, weirder still is the fact that God tells them not to save any of it for later. I mean, they're in the desert. If I was wandering around in a climate that seemed determined to kill me, um, I, I, and I saw this huge feast show up out of nowhere, I would want to save as much of it as possible. If I was in that situation, and I see that happen, I'm going to make jerky out of the quail, I'm going to stuff as much manna into my backpack as I possibly can, and I'm going to keep hiking. Because if you don't pack a lunch in the desert, you're going to die. Yet, God specifically commands them, no one is to keep any of it for the next morning. If I was there, this would strike me as a really bad idea. Sort of fortunate that God doesn't ask our approval for these things, isn't it? It seems like a bad idea, but that's because I'm looking at it as if God wasn't trustworthy. I mean, an all-loving, all-powerful God tells me that every single day he's going to keep me far from starvation. But because I look at the situation as if survival was about my resourcefulness, I'm afraid. God used daily provision in the desert as a crucible for taking fear as a raw material and forging trust out of it, forging relationship out of it. When I continue to fear at some level, it's because I don't trust God for my immediate needs. There's a biblical scholar named R.H. Mounts uh, who once wrote that worry is practical atheism. Essentially, if we worry about getting our needs met, we're saying, I don't really believe that God's going to provide. Worry denies the existence of God as our provider. It sets up substitutes as if we are the only ones who will come to our rescue or answer our prayers. So how do we not worry as I was saying, I actually knew where I was in my notes. Context matters. So up on the screen already uh, is passage Matthew 6.25 to 34, just a handful of verses after the Lord's Prayer. It goes like this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying could add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, he says. Are you not much more valuable? Will he not much more clothe you? Even more than I see a discussion on human worrying, I see a discussion on the character of God. I see Jesus telling us that the Father values us immensely and isn't out of touch with our needs. That's the way Jesus is trying to communicate to us, that there's no real reason to worry. God loves us perfectly, so what should we have to fear? He's trustworthy, and if we believe that, it dispels worry. So what does that trust look like in practical terms? Verse 32 says, don't run after these things that you need, frantic, desperate to accomplish on your own, as if no one was coming to take care of you which, again, is practical atheism. It's acting as if God didn't exist, and what you do is all there is. And even if you do believe that God can provide, uh, but you're still choosing to shoulder that duty yourself, I mean, is, is that a good idea, really, ever? Let's review. In the beginning, with nothing as raw materials, God created time, space, vitamin K, the immune system, substitutionary atonement, and still had time left over to take a day off. And then there's us. We have access to every kilobyte of information that has ever been written down at the click of a button, living in the richest nation in the history of the world. And yet, the best things we can come up with for maintaining our health are aspartame and Vicodin. Who seems more reliable to you? I mean, it just makes sense to trust God. He is better at this. But even knowing that, there's still something kind of terrifying about settling into a relationship of reliance. Or you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow or come up with the rent sometimes. That's where I was, terrified, as I was staring at this calculator in front of me. And after my initial panicking, I realized that that day was June 20th, uh, which was three days before the start of our church-wide week of fasting and prayer about God's view on money. I didn't plan that, but it was planned. I was still figuring out what to fast from, uh, so I took the situation as sort of a suggestion and decided that I was going to fast from worrying. Uh, whenever I started, whenever I caught myself, anyway, uh, starting to worry about money, uh, I would stop and instead just talk to God about it. Um, if that sounds hard, uh, it's harder. Uh, definitely failed a few times. Um, but I wanted to try and obey what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 6 here, to seek first the way of being that we call the kingdom of God. Seek that first, whether or not you're doing it perfectly. Here's a hint. You won't. Try it anyway. Seek that first, and God will take care of the little things. You know, little things like money. And uh, believe it or not, money is a little thing, or, or it should be. 
It'd be pretty big, though, depending on how we look at it, how much power we ascribe to it, how much power we believe it has over our lives. If you've, uh, if you've been in the United States for more than five consecutive seconds, uh, then you know that our money has the phrase, uh, in God we trust, printed on it. And I realized this week that that's a great little litmus test where anytime I see a piece of money, I can look at that and go, okay, is that true of me? Um, do I have faith in that phrase or just in the paper it's printed on? I really do think, though, when the bills come true, that most of us, fear the absence of the dollar in our lives more than we fear the absence of God. So what's our alternative to all this? Um, how do we stop talking about our trust for God, our daily bread, and start living it? Um, conveniently enough, there are three points to this, because if you've been in the church, everything comes in three points. Uh, and they're all found in Matthew 6, 32 and 33. Uh, First one is breaking your trust in your own worldly provision. Stop running after the things you need, as if saving us is our own job. Now, I want to be clear on this. I do not in any way mean to say that things like you know food, clothing, housing, or the money that you use to get them doesn't matter. I'm not saying that because Jesus didn't say that. It's right there in the passage. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If he didn't, you know, why would Jesus ask us to ask the Father for it? Stuff does matter. To a point. You'll notice Jesus taught us to ask for a little bit of bread. Plain, simple bread. Just enough to get us through till tomorrow. When our relationship leads us back to asking and receiving again. It is a misuse of this scripture to say that God wants you to be wealthy. Um, saying that also means ignoring... The times Jesus said, uh, let's see, you can't serve God in money. It's darn near impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Blessed are the poor, uh, for yours is the kingdom. The list is pretty long here. Um, that last one, blessed are the poor, uh, had always made me wonder, why? What's, what's good about being poor? And I think the better question is, what's wrong with hoarding your wealth, however much or little? When we have any amount, really, and we stockpile it for ourselves, we're entering into this, well, fear, first of all, and self-worship that says participating in the mission of God in the redemption of this world is less important to me than maintaining my standard of living. As Mike said in a sermon last month, how you think about and use your money can be the number one indicator of your spiritual health. So what's good about poverty? Well, those who are poor have watched every other source of security fail already. For them, it doesn't make any sense to have confidence in your own ability to accumulate and keep yourself safe. So they have one less alternative to trust in God alone. Having only your daily bread sets up a reinforcer teaching you every single day that security is found only in a trusting relationship with our Father in whom we are safe. Somebody once put it to me uh, this way. They said, resting in the palm of God's hand is the safest place you can be, regardless of what valleys that hand is going to carry you through. I want to clarify something, because I know how easy it would be to listen to all this and say, hey, Adam's saying poverty is holiness and having a savings account is evil. No, not so much. I, uh, I honestly don't think you can argue that cogently from the scriptures. Um, 
It's like that often misquoted verse, you know, the actual version of which is, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, money isn't evil inherently, and great things have been done for the kingdom through the wise use of rather large sums of money. Just be very, very careful that you understand money, a lot like the spiritual gifts that Brad was talking about last week, is given to us for the good of others. Our daily bread, remember? It's not just for me, it's for us. Let's ask provision for us, for this, you know, this family, body of Christ, the church. Let us use everything we get beyond the bare essentials for survival, for the good of others in love. That brings us to our second point. Seek first the kingdom. This flies in the face of everything we know, right? I mean, our culture says if you've got a problem, make solving it your number one priority. And once you've crossed all the urgent stuff off your to-do list, then you can go back to more leisure activities like, you know, prayer or spending yourself on behalf of people who need you or reading the word of God so that you know who he is and not just who you imagine him to be. I think that at some level we really do think of these as somehow optional or less urgent. If we don't, you got to ask yourself, well, then why am I not prioritizing them as much as the survival stuff? When everything you've been taught from hardwired instinct to Maslow's hierarchy says, all right, well, first take care of the urgent daily needs, and then when you have spare time, you know, then go search for meaning and purpose. I feel like Jesus is saying, no, you've got that backward. Maybe one reason for that is because if we don't seek, or if we take care of survival first, rather, then we're never going to make time to seek the kingdom later. My, uh, my first reaction, I'm not going to lie, to this budget news uh, was to shift into survival mode. It was just instinct. And immediately I started looking through the budget trying to figure out what to cut. I'm thinking, okay. Um, well, I, I just recently started going to Jesse Jesse's potluck. Um, but, you know, i got to buy something to bring to that. So, I mean, it's sort of optional. So if I don't go to that, that's a few extra bucks a week. That'll add up. Um, and, I mean, yeah, I'm supporting, you know, some ministries in my church and stuff. But I'm sure God will understand if I sort of cut back on that. And I was like, okay, stop. What are you doing right now? And I was acting out of fear. Um, I wasn't cutting non-essentials. I was cutting things like generosity as a character trait, like keeping my word on the pledges that I've made to scum and some other missionaries, like loving people, like faithfulness to God. These are not non-essentials. You cannot just fit them in if you feel like it. According to the world, these things have no survival value, but what God do you think we serve that our life should be about survival? God promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you believe that? And if you do, would somebody be able to look at your life and know that? I believed it partially. You know, I knew God hadn't disappeared, but I was still afraid. Didn't know if he was going to actually take care of me. Um, I was wrestling with that all through this week of fasting and prayer that we did. And on Thursday of that week, uh, I came over to the building here to, uh, to pray about it. Um, the sanctuary was open for, uh, for communal prayer all throughout that week. You could just drop in whenever. Uh, so I dropped in and found a, uh, a youth group uh, doing a service trip of, uh, you know, cleaning and maintaining the building. And uh, I don't know about you guys. I'm definitely part of the attention deficit generation. And uh, 
I can't pray when there's a vacuum going back and forth. So ended up going downstairs uh, where it was quiet and I could focus. And just started praying. I, uh, I sat there talking to God for, I think, like an hour and a half, just listening for some kind of answer to my prayers, which were still panicky and more along the lines of, are you going to provide this time? And after a long time in prayer, uh, God answered through this dialogue that just sort of popped into my head, and it went like this. Adam, do you believe that I'm sovereign? That's like one of those, you know, Sunday school questions where you know, like, oh, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer has to be Jesus. The only answer is yes. You know the only answer is yes. And so some of you grew up in the church. Good. You think that's funny. So do I. Uh, But, yeah, God's like, do you believe that I'm sovereign? And I'm like, yeah. The answer is always C, right? Yes, I believe you're sovereign. He's like, okay. Do you believe that I'm good? I'm like, yes. Yes, I do believe that you're good. And he goes, well, if you know that I'm in control of things and you know that I always work for good, then shouldn't you stop asking, are you going to do something and ask, what are you going to accomplish through this situation? What are you already accomplishing in this time? Fear blinds people, and so I hadn't really considered that at all until that moment. So I started thinking about it, and I heard him saying, okay, look back at what I have done since. As I reviewed the nine months or so since I made that big old math error uh, and quit my second job based on it, I realized like, I have done some really heavy stuff since then. I mean, I, uh, you know, with the help of a good counselor, I got through a really tough time of some depression. I uh, wasn't sleeping well, so I'm tired all the time on top of that. Uh, went back to Illinois where, as a kid, I basically ran away from home, went back to that home, sought reconciliation with my father, uh, and started building a relationship with him for the first time in my life. Like Emotional work like that is just the hardest damn thing in the world, and it takes up a lot of energy and headspace. Things that I wouldn't have had if I was still juggling school, job, job, life. I made a big old budgeting error and quit my job, and God said, okay, you've got time to work on this stuff that would have been too difficult for you. So let's use the situation for good. God took the situation that I created and chose to use it to provide something that I needed more than money right then. Focus and energy to work toward redemption in my family and in my health and in my life. We still got to ask, though, well, how is God going to provide for the basic essentials? For you, for me, for any of us. And, um, well, depends, I suppose. I mean, he is a pretty creative fella. That brings us to our last point. Ask and receive. Simple stuff, seemingly. But we're pretty bad at this. How's he been doing it for me, anyway? I should start with that. Um, since my time talking with God down in the basement here, my decision to stop worrying and just get to it. I started asking God for enough, and he's come through in some ways that really surprised me. Um, my, uh, my clothes have all been falling apart. I tend to buy, like, really durable clothes that just last for a decade, and then they do, but then they all disintegrate at the same time. Um, and, uh, like, I, all my pairs of pants have been developing holes that were too big to be patched anymore, believe me. Meg tried. 
um, and succeeded for a while, but it gets to a point. Um, and like my shoes are falling apart, just everything. And so I'm thinking, oh great, here's another expense. You know, how how's God going to take care of this? How am I going to be all right with this? And uh, in the middle of this, I get an email from my bank just going, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but you've got a couple hundred dollars in reward points sitting around. Do you want us to just like mail you a couple gift cards to Kohl's? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> God's awesome. Um, so yeah, these, these pants, this t-shirt that I'm wearing, totally free, didn't cost me a penny. God's just like, here, have clothes. Um, even in my favorite color. Um, <laughs> what could that be? You're asking yourself. Um, so there was still the matter of my shoes, size 10, uh, which have almost given out. And so one Sunday, I'm hanging out in the purple room uh, after morning service with some folks. And um, this guy that I don't know all that well, honestly, uh, just walks in through the back door, uh, walks directly up to the table I was at. I didn't even know he was out there in the bike shop or wherever. Walks up to the table I'm at, unloads his backpack, and takes out a pair of nearly new Converse All-Stars and says, hey, Buffalo Exchange wasn't going to give me anything for these. Does anybody need them? Well, I'm like, what, what size are they? He's like, 10. I'm like, God is awesome. Um, and if I expressed any of that out loud, I'm sure there are a lot of people just looking at me like, well, I know, dude, but what? what? <laughs> he provides in really surprising ways sometimes when we ask him to. Um, sometimes it's also pretty straightforward. Um, I've started fundraising uh, so I can put in a couple more hours here at SCUM, actually a lot more hours here at SCUM, and a few more people have started supporting me in that, uh, which puts me a little closer to a sustainable income for Meg and I. Um, and a, a Christian friend of mine gave me his, uh, his boss's business card so that I have sort of an in for picking up a second job short term so that I'd be taken care of while I can ramp up the, the support until that's online. In both cases, God is providing for me through ordinary means. Uh, his people, and work. And I want to talk about work because I feel like that's something that a lot of us get wrong um, in our understanding of it and God. Uh, for some reason, we think that either God will provide or you will work for it. Um, and I hear that and ask, is, is your God too little to work through jobs? We've got this idea that unless God gives us our daily bread in some sky-splitting miraculous event with pillars of fire and locusts and the Platte River turning to blood, um, that if that doesn't happen, eh, it probably wasn't God. Personally, if you do see that, take a picture. Uh, I'd like to see it. But you know how God provided for me for half a decade of my life? Counting by fives at the Walgreens pharmacy counter. You think every day of that felt like a miracle? I can tell you it didn't. You think it'll just be all unicorns and rainbows every time I show up to this upcoming second job at Starbucks? I, I'm not studying counseling over a metro so I can be a career barista. You know, this doesn't fulfill me as a person. It's not my dream job, but you know what? It's a job. Sometimes we look at the ways God provides, and whether it be a job or anything else, and we're like, oh, this kind of looks like some stale bread. Yeah, it's still bread. <laughs> he is providing it. Receive it gratefully and on God's terms, not ours. In studying for the sermon, I read a story about a group of seminary students who were uh, visiting uh, a monastery for a week. It was a, a Trappist monastery specifically there. 
They don't actually have a vow of silence, but no extraneous words. So it, it was pretty quiet. And uh, one evening, they're at the dinner table, and they are in silence, enjoying some pretty tasty bread together. And one of the stu- students blurts out, hey, um, did we make this bread, or did somebody give it to us? And one of the monks says, yes. It is not an either-or thing. It's a both-and. Be willing to receive your daily bread in whatever way God chooses to provide, including each other. Paul writes in Romans 12, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And we get a little bit from James 2 on how that can look. Uh, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Be warm and well-fed, but does nothing to take care of his physical needs. What good is it? It's our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to take care of each other, and not just when we have extra, and not just when it's convenient. Incidentally, that also means that it's our responsibility to let others do that. Um, Don't take away other people's opportunity to extend grace. You are jacking up their spiritual progress and God's design. Inability to receive is a problem. I don't think we really look at it as one. It's roughly as important as inability to give. Because how can you give if no one receives? Be ready and willing to play both halves of that. To give out of an open-handed generosity. And to receive through each other as you have need. A big chunk of the kingdom involves the unity of God's children who we collectively just call the church, the global church. Our culture is constantly warring with God for the rights to our priorities, so help us fight back through the sharing of stories of how God has come through in ways that the world says shouldn't work. Ask people you know within the church about times God has provided their daily bread because they prioritize seeking first the kingdom. I know we hear these concepts and we think like, Oh, that's great in the Bible, but this is the real world. No. The Bible is for the real world. And it's easier for us to realize that the more real-world stories we hear of it being done. Hear other people's short stories and share yours. You know, every time we hear somebody else's story of trusting in God and him, surprise, not letting them down, it helps us with our own trust. Share your stuff, too. Uh, as Craig, uh, Craig Bombard wrote in his 460-page commentary on Matthew, uh, which is good for enlarging your mind and your biceps, um, verse 33 of tonight's passage is probably to be interpreted in light of Luke 12:33 and Mark 10:30, which presuppose the sharing of goods within the Christian community. When God's people corporately seek first his priorities, they will, by definition take care of the needy in their fellowships. God has a plan for this in the real world. Enter into the kingdom way of living in every perspective on material stuff that comes with it, including the realization that God can provide for you, for you through opportunities to work and earn, through his people, through miraculous stuff that you never saw coming. Don't put them in a box. You can do a lot. Just ask him. So here we are at the end of it, and 
does this passage mean that you need to walk out of here and immediately give all your stuff away? Not necessarily. It's not the stuff itself that matters. It's the often unseen effect that it has on us and our relationships with God and other people. I mean, if you make a hundred grand a year and you're giving most of it away to support the church in some way, be it, you know, a brick and mortar church, missionaries just taking care of your brothers and sisters who are in need, helping the poor. If you are putting this to work for God's kingdom instead of letting it just rot in some bank account, sitting there making you think, well, I don't really have to trust God because I got that. If you're choosing to use it, I don't care how much you have. Rock on. That's amazing. If you have 50 bucks a year and you're clinging to it as if that's your safety net, you've got some changes to make. It isn't about the amount of it. It's about how it changes your mind and heart, often without us noticing. I don't know where my bread is coming from past December, but I don't need to yet. Spending my mental energy on trying to seek the kingdom instead of worrying about that, that makes my life rich. Brothers and sisters, will you take this journey with me? You know, asking God for our daily bread, trusting him together. Together living lives born of meaning out of simple everyday life by participating in the kingdom of God. Pray with me, if you would, the way our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.